Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. Merry Christmas! This week, we wrap up our month-long look back at your favorite programs of 2023. We'll explore the King of Books and the Coming Temple with Lonnie Shipman, Flood Legends with Charles Martin, and Ray Comfort will encourage us to be like Daniel. Today, we have a special Christmas-themed program from the Radio Vault. Here's former longtime host Noah Hutchings discussing whether Christians should observe Christmas. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. This is Brother Hutchings inviting the listeners to another Watchman on the Wall program of Southwest Radio Ministries. Well, Brother Hutchings, weren't you uh, recently in Israel, and didn't you go to Bethlehem in that area? Yes, the first part of November, uh, we were in Israel, and as it was... When Joseph took Mary up to Bethlehem, there was no room at the inn in Israel. Every uh, hotel was full. Every room was full. Even the rooms in Jordan, when we went to Jordan, were full. So there were thousands and thousands from all over the world, from Africa, from South America, from Europe, from Hong Kong, from Singapore, I've never seen so many people in Israel. But in any event, we had a great tour, and we did go to Bethlehem. Of course, Bethlehem now is in Palestinian Authority territory. We have to go through the wall there is erected between Jerusalem and Bethlehem and get on a Palestinian bus. But we did get to go to Bethlehem. But sadly, Bethlehem is pretty empty these days. The Christians, most of them, have left Bethlehem for one reason or another. There's really no employment there much since the tourists don't go to Bethlehem, or very few of them anymore. Also, the Israeli army uh, pulled out, and there's now no protection for Christians against the uh, Muslims in that area. So uh, it was pretty well deserted. You know, uh, we really don't know if that is the church there that in Bethlehem where Christ was born. If it wasn't, it would probably been within a block or two. It seems like Constantine's mother visited there in about 325 A.D., and according to tradition, she said, or someone said, that that's where Jesus was born. But we really don't know. I really don't care to go to the church too much because there's so much pageantry, smoke, incense. I don't go for all that. But in any event, it possibly could have been where Christ is born, but it was nice to go there and take a tour group. Well, going to Israel is always a tremendous blessing. I went with you in 2006. Certainly for those of our listeners who have never been to Israel, that is at least a trip that you must make in a lifetime, at least one time. According to the Jerusalem Post, that 
And I quote, Nehemiah, who lived in the period when Judah was a province of the Persian Empire, arrived in Jerusalem as governor in 445 B.C. Uh, of course, the publications in Israel and the Orthodox still will not use the dates B.C. or A.D. They call it the Common Era because they don't want to recognize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. But in any event, the date here is interesting. They seem to uh, confirm the date of 445 BCE or before Christ when Nehemiah went to Jerusalem. And that would have been when the Persian king signed the decree according to Daniel 9 that Jerusalem could be rebuilt. That's according to the beginning of the 70 prophetic weeks, and that would also confirm the date, according to Daniel 9, that Christ would be crucified or cut off, and that would also confirm the fact that he was indeed the Messiah. Well, we see Scripture over and over again just pointing to the identity of Israel's Messiah, and guess who that is? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we certainly praise the Lord for the power and the truthfulness of Scripture and the way God has preserved His Word. Scriptures are being under attack now from even some of those that we thought in the church were fairly fundamental scholars. Well, yes. One of my favorite, at least in the past, apologists, someone who defends the Christian faith and who has been a very articulate defender of the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, has been J.P. Moreland, who teaches at Biola in California. Christianity Today had an article where actually it refers to J.P. Moreland. He says, that evangelical Christians are too committed to the Bible. And I was absolutely flabbergasted by that. He gave a talk at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting. The talk was entitled, How Evangelicals Become Overcommitted to the Bible and What Can Be Done About It. And here's what J.P. Moreland, this apologist, said. He said, in the actual practices of the evangelical community in North America, there is an overcommitment to Scripture in a way that is false, irrational, and harmful to the cause of Christ. And then he went on and says, it has produced a mean-spiritedness among the overcommitted that is a grotesque and often ignorant distortion of discipleship unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said the problem was the idea, and I'm quoting him, that the Bible is the sole source of knowledge of God, morality, and a host of related important items. So he says that's not true. He says that's the problem. People have believed that the Bible is the sole source of knowledge of God. And then he goes on, and I'm quoting him. He says, accordingly, the Bible is taken to be the sole authority for faith and practice, close quotes. And J.P. Moreland says that's not true. Now, Dr. Hutchings, I'm absolutely flabbergasted. I mean, the Bible is the sole authority for faith and practice. And unfortunately, J.P. Moreland has been getting into contemplative Christianity. And of course, that is becoming very popular in the emerging church. 
There's a great deal of mysticism. It's not so much the propositional truths of the Word of God that are important, but rather Jesus and me or my experience of Jesus. So I'm afraid another one is going down. And of course, we know the number one sign of the end times is Israel, but I believe the second most important sign is very well the apostasy of the church, and we're seeing that at the present time. Certainly, that's very disturbing, and that the megachurch concept of experiences, entertainment, changing away from the inspired Word of God, when you do that, then every leader, as Paul said, hear a vision, there a dream, hear a word, there an experience. You can't do that. You have to stay with the inspired Word of God. You know, I've been very encouraged for those who have supported our ministry this year, and most of them say that we support you because you're still firm in your belief in the Bible and the Word of God. And so it's very disturbing. But, you know, uh, we come back to Christmas, which most Christians will be observing Christmas Day. Certainly many Christians, though, are reticent to observe Christmas because uh, many of the events or celebrations associated with Christmas uh, certainly, and we acknowledge are of a secular or paganistic origin. However, let us consider, though, is there anything about December the 25th that a Christian can, in good conscience, set aside or observe as being associated with the coming of Jesus Christ, God in his love sending his only Son in the form of human flesh to die for the sins of the world. Can we in any way in good conscience observe in some manner as being associated with that great event? Well, I think there are are certainly some things that uh, we will be pointing out that we can hold to be dear. But you know, Dr. Hutchings, it's very interesting that as you've pointed out that because some Christmas customs can be traced more to paganism, then to Christianity, some Christians get really nervous. You know, the pilgrims in early America deliberately made December the 25th a day of work. <laughs> they wanted to avoid any semblance of so-called, quote, superstition. For some of them, it was even wrong to cook plum pudding for the Christmas holidays. Now, my take on that comes from Romans 14, verses 5 and 6. I want to read those two verses. Paul says this, one man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. So the apostle refuses to be entangled in, in setting aside special days, as some people say we should do. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. Or he refuses to be entangled in not setting aside special days. So we're going to be talking about some really important issues here. And I think, as you pointed out, there is something very significant about Christmas Day. So, Dr. Hutchings, maybe you could continue with your exposition of this teaching, which is so important. Well, let's begin in the first chapter of Luke, where we read in verses 1 through 3, For as much as many has taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are 
most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. In these opening verses, Luke, the beloved physician, writes to Theophilus. The meaning of Theophilus, as I understand it, in the Greek is a lover of God. So it could be he is writing to anyone who loves God, or it could have been that he was writing to a particular person, but we don't know. In any event, Luke says, it seems good to me to do this. And he starts first with the virgin birth, or the birth of Jesus. Now, Luke was a physician, so the indication here is that being a physician, he should start with the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, or the coming of the Messiah from the womb of a virgin. And who could be better able to discuss this than a physician. Certainly, his being a believer in Jesus Christ, a disciple of the Lord, and a physician, it was natural for him to address this subject. And we uh, continue in verses 4 and 5, that thou mayest know the certainty of these things, wherein thou hast been instructed. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So the uh, setting for Luke's beginning here concerning the birth of John the Baptist and later Jesus Christ was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. It is important that we note that Zacharias was of the course of Abiah. Now, in the priesthood, as we read in 1 Chronicles 24, it was divided into 24 courses because there were many priests. So if you took all of those priests and put them in the courtyard around the temple, the courtyard probably wouldn't hold them all. Each order served in the temple one week, twice a year. In other words, they were in the temple two weeks out of the entire year, and each period of service was separated by six months. Most of the priests lived in the Judean hills. Some lived on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Some lived way down in Jericho because Jericho was a beautiful city. So they would go to their homes and live off of the offerings of the temple, and they would also grow their own crops or work their gardens. Some may have even kept a few sheep or cattle, but we don't know. In any event, it was not a hard life and they would go up twice a year to serve in the temple. And we read here that one of these priests' names was Zacharias. His wife's name was Elizabeth, and both of them were from the tribe or lineage of Aaron. We continue now in verses 6 and 7. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless, and they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both 
were now well stricken in years. Now, Zechariah and his wife were not only old, they were stricken in years. They were feeble. He probably walked around with a cane, and Elizabeth, when she would go out to hang out clothes or get something from the garden, probably had to trot around and make it hold to the fence or the door in order to get back into the house. Now, in verses 8 through 11, we read, And it came to pass that while he, meaning Zacharias, executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of the incense, and there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So Zacharias's service in the temple was to offer up incense. He would go and take some of the incense, put it on the coals in the altar of incense, and the smoke having a sweet savor, would rise up out of the temple and ascend up into heaven. The people on the outside in the courtyard, those observing Jews who were surrounding the temple, some perhaps there to make offerings, would see the smoke come up. And as soon as they did, they would stop what they were doing and start praying because the smoke was symbolic of the prayers ascending up to God. The whole multitude would pray as long as the smoke was coming up out of the temple. Likewise, Zacharias, he would also pray when the smoke would begin to rise up from the altar. We know from subsequent verses that Zacharias at this particular moment was praying for a son because he didn't have an heir. They were both old, they were both feeble, and he wanted a son to possibly carry on the lineage or the hope of the Messiah. That was the prayer of every mother, of every father in Israel to somehow be in the lineage to produce the Messiah. So Zacharias was praying for a son, even though he and his wife were both old, were both feeble, probably in their mid-80s or perhaps even older. While Zacharias was standing praying, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him. And we read from verses 12 through 14, and I quote it, And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John, and thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. Close quotes. Now, here is this feeble old man, a priest, praying, and the angel comes and tells him, that God has heard his prayer. And we continue in verses 15 through 17. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. And we're talking here about this son that Zacharias promised. And shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him, meaning going before the Messiah, 
in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What was this angel Gabriel telling Zacharias? He was telling him not only that he was going to have a son, but his son would grow up and would go out in the spirit and power of Elijah. He would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and he would make ready a people for the Lord or the Messiah. So what Zechariah was told was that he was going to have a son. He was going to be Elijah or like Elijah, and he would be a forerunner of Messiah. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. We read in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Dr. Spargimino, we see here that this priest, Zacharias, was told he was going to have a son that would fulfill the promise in Malachi that this son would go and prepare a people to receive the Messiah. That would be this son's message. And this was a great hope for Zechariah. We have to remember that this was an old man. He was still feeble. We can understand that Zechariah wouldn't believe that. But did this happen around the time for the Messiah to be born on what we would call December the 25th on Christmas Day? You can have a copy of our article, Was Christ Conceived on Christmas Day? We've been listening to a program from the SWRC Radio Vault featuring longtime host Noah Hutchings. If you'd like a copy of this or any of the programs you hear, call today, 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. One of the wonderful things about the Christmas season is the music. James Sunquist is here to share some beautiful music and rejoice in the true reason for the season. We are back with James Sunquist, and we will continue our discussion about music, hymns, and carols. James, thank you so much for being on the show. Larry, great to be back with you for the many times and over a quarter of a century. <laughs> yes, that's indeed very true. But uh, James, what's the difference between a Christmas carol and a Christmas hymn? Excellent question, Larry. The, historically, a carol is a ring dance, and it's one of their main reasons it was not allowed in the church, because it was done in the streets, and they thought that was pagan and sacrilegious. So in England, they didn't allow that. But over time, the carol has lost that connection. But ring dances are still done in Eastern Orthodox, Russian, and of course, the Jewish traditions of dancing. They don't call it a carol, but they still, it's still a ring dance. But today, carols are done and sung in schools and churches without dancing. 
usually, sometimes they do. That's the main thing. And then they took out, like, God rest you, married gentlemen, they got rid of the syncopated dancing. Bouncing is when you're dancing in a circle. And they took out the, the rhythms, so they brought it into the church and they made it more stiff and march-like. So they changed that. But in my recording, I do both. I have a, a straight, upright, rigid, and then I have the bouncing in the last verse. But James, why don't Christmas carols go back to the beginning of the church age? And why are they so recent and only allowed in worship of the last few hundred years? Another great question, Larry. The Much of it has to do with the, they followed the tradition for so, for so long of just doing the Psalms and sometimes other texts that they would insert, but they would, they kept it really strict in that way and not allowing the, if you would, the pagan world to enter in, uh, let alone the, anything that resembled paganism. So they, they kept it strict in that sense for so long, and it was only toward the Reformation and beyond where they, they started allowing more things to come in, and uh, hymn writers with text, and then setting it to music. But even then, Larry, they were often took a religious text that was airtight doctrinally, but they'd set it to a uh, secular hymns that were done in the streets and in taverns and things. Right, right. <laughs> well, there are a lot of things that are very interesting, I think, about carols, to say the least. Now, are sacred Christmas carols, like your Silent Night Band, anywhere in America, like England did in the last century? A oh, wonderful question. <laughs> Believe it or not, Right in a, in a public school in New Jersey, they banned them, and they may be banned in other places. And so the war never ends about the use of Christmas carols. You think they'd be innocent enough? But the, <laughs> the war goes on, Larry. Wow. It's unbelievable what's, uh, what's happening. But uh, I've got one more question. James, why were sacred carol melodies originally set to pagan text, later set to sacred text? Well, they often just grabbed what they could in terms of getting a melody that they wanted. And it's baffling in a lot of ways to me because we do have many really godly composers that wrote melodies like Mendelssohn wrote the, the music for Hark the Herald Angel Sings. But he, he wasn't around at the time when the text was written. And so often great scholars and preachers, you know, pastors, they needed the song. They Over time they would write doctrine and then they set it to, to rhyme and made sure it was airtight doctrinally, and then they had to come up with a melody. <laughs> so ironically, they turned right around to get a secular melody because it was one that was in the streets and available. There's many other reasons, but that's at least one, Larry. Well, James, thank you so much for your musical expertise, and thank you certainly for talking to us about this important genre, you might say, Christmas carols. They make many people happy. Some of them are really good and honor the Lord. So thank you so much. Oh, it's a blessing to have done it and to talk with you, Larry, and fellowship, and we can dance in the spirit now. <laughs> All right. God bless, James. Good talking to you. God bless, Larry. If you'd like an audio copy of today's program, please call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. When you call, make sure you also request a copy of Noah Hutchings' classic Prophetic Observer article, entitled, Was Christ Conceived on Christmas Day? Both the article and today's program are available when you call 1-800-652-1144. Again, that's 1-800-652-1144. 
Sacred Carols for Classical Guitar CD by James Sunquist is also available today when you call the 800 number. You can also order at our website, swrc.com. That number again is 1-800-652-1144. Tomorrow, Charles Martin investigates why the story of the global flood of Noah permeates nearly every culture in the world in some way, some shape or form. So be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station by downloading our SWRC mobile app or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Merry Christmas from all of us at SWRC.